So what we see in this passage is essentially the conversion of Jethro. Now, it doesn't tell us explicitly, oh, Jethro repudiated the gods of Midian. Remember, he was the priest of Midian, as verse 1 tells us. It doesn't tell us explicitly that he came to put his trust in Yahweh. But there is enough of, there are enough indications here to draw the conclusion that I have. In verse 10, Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Listen to what he says. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And in verse 12, it says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And then it says, And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so you see here, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. He acknowledges that the Lord is superior to all other gods. And he eats together with God's people in the very presence of God. And so there's something of a fellowship meal with God's people. There is an acknowledgement of the superiority of Yahweh. And there is a religious observance, which is a burnt offering offered up to God. It seems clear here that Jethro has been converted away from the worship of the Midianite gods, and he has been converted to the worship of Yahweh. This is the main thing that is in view here in this passage tonight. It says that Jethro came with Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two children after Moses had sent her home. It's unclear at what point Moses had sent her home. Perhaps she was sent home before the Exodus even for safekeeping. We read uh, uh, several chapters earlier when Moses and Zipporah are on their way to Egypt that somewhat strange passage at the end of Exodus chapter 4 in which it says at a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death and Zipporah circumcises their firstborn son and then the Lord lets him alone it's possible that after that incident the that Zipporah was sent home that Moses told her to return to her father it became clear as as we saw when we were studying that passage that this was a life and death situation. Perhaps Moses was concerned for her welfare and sent her home. Calvin argues against that, saying that it would have been cowardly and it would have manifested a lack of faith in God's preserving power for Moses to send Zipporah home. In fact, we saw, even as we studied that passage in Exodus chapter 4, that it wasn't just, though it was a matter of life and death, it wasn't just a matter of random life and death as if some were going to die in this whole Exodus narrative and some weren't, what was clear, even as we studied that passage, is that those who belong to God's covenant people will live, will be preserved, and it is the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people who will die. And so Calvin says Moses should have known that. There's no way that he would have sent Zipporah home after that incident just to keep her safe. I'm not as sure as Calvin. I think it's possible still. But perhaps Moses sends Zipporah home to her father upon their departure from Egypt. 
saying something like, you know, go home, get your dad, and come meet us at Sinai, where we're going. You will remember that Moses knew he was returning to Sinai, where God had appeared to him in the burning bush. In chapter 3, in verse 12, the Lord says, you will return to worship me on this mountain. And so Moses knew that that was their destination, and it's possible that after they left Egypt, he told Zipporah, go get your father and meet us there. Perhaps she was longing to see him, and he afforded her the opportunity to go home, to see her family. We just simply don't know. Moses wasn't concerned in Exodus with writing an autobiography. Rather, his goal was to write the redemptive history of Israel. And so he didn't include as many personal details as we might have wished for. If Moses had sent Zipporah after the Exodus, then Zipporah may have been the messenger to get Jethro and to arrange this meeting at Sinai. If Moses had sent Zipporah home before the Exodus, probably he sent her with instructions that when you hear that we've come out of Egypt, go and meet us at Sinai. As I said, Moses knew that they were returning there. Doubtless, uh, the Midianites would hear sort of the gossip of what was going on in the region as nomadic uh, uh, travelers would pass through their region and bring news of what was happening in Egypt. The exodus could hardly have passed unnoticed by the surrounding nations. And so perhaps um, that was how it played out. We simply just don't know. But in any case, what is primarily in view here is not the circumstances of Zipporah's return to Jethro, nor the uh, reason why or the means by which Jethro knew to meet them at the mountain. None of that is really in view here. What is primarily in view here is simply Jethro's coming to Moses and his conversion. And Moses relates to, his, to Jethro in two ways. One is as his father-in-law, and one is as priest of Midian. Or to put it another way, Jethro is presented to us in two ways in this passage, as Moses' father-in-law and as priest of Midian. Both of those are in chapter 18 and verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. These are the two hats that Jethro wears, so to speak. These are his two roles. So let's consider how Moses relates to Jethro in each of these ways. First, I want you to see the respect that Moses affords his father-in-law. Look at verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So what you see here is that Moses expresses a warmth and a respect. There's certainly the cultural expectations that Moses would do such a thing, but you don't get the sense that this is forced or grudging. Moses seems to embrace not only the cultural expectations that are upon him, but there seems to be a real genuine warmth. He goes out meets his father-in-law, bows down, kisses him. They ask each other of their welfare, which is probably sort of the exchange of pleasantries. How are you doing? How have you been? Oh, pretty well, thanks. How about you? Yeah, pretty well, thanks. Okay, let's go into the tent and talk some more. 
And so it's in the tent where this greater conversation happens. But I want to highlight that respect that Moses affords his father-in-law. Remember at this time, Jethro hasn't been converted yet. So we have an unbelieving father-in-law. And we have Moses, the man of God, commissioned to lead the people of Israel up out of Egypt. Moses has no soft spot for false gods. To the contrary, Moses has been battling false gods in Egypt. Moses is not a compromiser. And yet Moses shows his father-in-law respect here in this passage. This is instructive for us in terms of how we ought to relate to our unbelieving family members. Moses provides a good example for us here. We long to see God's churches full, as we just sang. We long to see them full, especially of our loved ones. If you have unbelieving children or unbelieving siblings, unbelieving parents, unbelieving aunts and uncles, unbelieving cousins, wouldn't you love to see them come? Wouldn't you love to see them believe? How are we to relate to them? Moses is no weak-kneed, soft man who's afraid to speak up, who's afraid to confront, who's afraid to challenge. And yet here he is, bowing down before his unbelieving father-in-law kissing him, showing warmth, showing respect to his unbelieving father-in-law. Sometimes we think that the best way to reach our family members is to wait until everybody's gathered around at the table, maybe at a a holiday, when everybody's there for Christmas. Man, I'm going to present the strongest arguments. When everybody's here... I'm going to, and they can't get away, right? (laughs) Now I'm going to really lay into them. I'm just going to tell it like it is. I'm just going to give them the truth. If they can't receive the truth, it's their own problem. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. When I get the chance, I'm going to tell them. I'm I'm not one to just avoid the issue. I'm one to speak to the truth. And I'm going to do that. Moses doesn't really take that approach here at all, does he? In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we read the apostle instructing us as follows. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We hear that quoted often, don't we? But how often do we hear the second half of that passage quoted? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. As far as possible, we are to try to temper the force of our tone and the We need to measure the cutting, piercing 
aspect of our words to the people with whom we deal. You remember that when Moses approached Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? There was this utter hard-heartedness. And what you see is the Lord escalating. There we go. Some light. What we see in the Ten Plagues narrative is the Lord escalating the intensity with which he deals with Pharaoh. And it's not at all wrong for us to escalate the intensity with which we deal with people, with which we deal with our unbelieving family members and friends. It's appropriate when there is hard-heartedness, when there is a, a really vitriolic response to our evangelism, when there is mocking and ridicule and scoffing. It is appropriate to turn up the intensity. But we don't necessarily start at level 10. And evidently, Moses didn't need to use the same approach with Jethro as he used with Pharaoh. Gentleness doesn't mean that you're always soft, else Moses wouldn't have been gentle in Egypt. But gentleness means that that we try to be as soft as we can be, given the situation. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, we read this. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We see in this passage that Moses approaches his father-in-law with gentleness in a way that facilitates them going in the tent to speak together further. Moses doesn't come right out saying, there you are, you unbelieving pagan. Haven't you heard what the Lord has done to the people of Egypt, and yet you still haven't bowed the knee? You ungodly man, Jethro. Hear ye the word of the Lord. This is not the approach that Moses takes with his father-in-law. But rather Moses goes out, bows down before his father-in-law, he kisses him. He asks about his well-being and then invites him in to speak with him further about what has transpired, what has happened in Egypt. So we see this respect. And I, I think it's important for us to Note in this example that Moses, pardon me, to note in this instance that Moses is a good example to us. How are we to relate to our unbelieving family members and friends in a way that makes it easy to invite them into the tent to talk further? In a way that, as insofar as humanly possible, makes it appealing to them to come into the tent to discuss things further. John Knox, who was no coward, 
John Knox, who opposed the queen that was known as Bloody Mary for her massacre of Protestants. John Knox said, we cannot antagonize, we cannot antagonize those whom we seek to influence. We need to approach our unbelieving family members with gentleness, with respect. Bow down before them and kiss them, as it were, in terms of the ways that are culturally appropriate to show respect, to show deference to our elders, to show deference to those who have loved us and raised us and provided for us for many years, in the case of our parents or parents-in-laws who have done so for our spouses. We need to show gentleness and respect. But that being said, they do go into the tent and discuss things further. And you can be sure that Moses didn't hold back in terms of the details of how God has brought them out of Egypt. It says in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Who is the protagonist in Moses' retelling of this story? The protagonist just means the main character. Who is the main character in Moses' retelling? The Lord. He didn't say, it doesn't say Moses told his father-in-law all that he, Moses, had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, but how Moses prevailed in the end and delivered them. Moses tells the story as one who was merely an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Moses tells a God-centered story to his father-in-law. He tells about the opposition of Pharaoh. He doesn't hide back the hardships that they experienced along the way. This is no health, wealth, and prosperity retelling. He acknowledges it was hard, but the Lord has delivered us. The Lord has brought us through. This word, then Moses told, Moses told his father-in-law, apparently in the Hebrew it's stronger. It's something like proclaimed. And so I'm sure it wasn't that, you know, Moses got out of a little pulpit and stood up and preached to his father-in-law. But proclaimed is a little stronger than told, isn't it? And so it seems that this was a story that Moses, you might say, you might say he got into it. He, you know, he really got into telling the story. And he proclaimed to his father-in-law all the things that the Lord had done for them. He told this God-centered story. And so even as we relate to our loved ones with gentleness and with respect, hoping that God would indeed grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, there needs to be this God-centered proclamation. There needs to be a honest telling of the hardships that we Christians experience along the way, what may be expected in the Christian life. But nevertheless, this assurance, we need to buy into this story, believe this story, own this story as our own. We need to get into the retelling of it. But nevertheless, grace has brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. Right? And as they were in the middle of it, the invitation was implicitly open for Jethro to join in the story. Right? Jethro, grace can lead you home too. 
Jethro's response, as I pointed out earlier. It says, Jethro rejoiced. Not simply Jethro acknowledged. Not simply Jethro was interested. Jethro rejoiced in all that the Lord, all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Jethro breaks out in doxology. Blessed be the Lord. And he, his doctrine has changed, hasn't it? Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And Jethro's worship is reoriented in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Do you long to see the day when your loved ones rejoice for all the good that the Lord has done to his people? Do you long to see the day when your loved ones say, now I know that what you're telling me is true and that God in Christ Jesus is the only Savior of mankind and there is none like him, that there are no other gods, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved? Do you long to see the day when the worship of your family members is reoriented away from whatever else has their hearts right now, whatever else has their priorities right now, their time, their energy, their money, and where they come to gather with God's people as Jethro gathered with Aaron and the elders of Israel and Moses to eat bread before the Lord, and where they pour out an offering of praise, even here among us in the assembly of the saints, as the burnt offerings went up in ancient times, so our praise goes up even now. Do you long to see your loved ones offering that same kind of response as Jethro offered him? And let us approach them as Moses did, as gently as possible, as respectfully as possible, bowing down before them, kissing them, inviting them to further conversation, proclaiming a God-centered story, testifying to them of what God has done for us and what God in Christ can do for them. You might think, well, they won't listen. Let's consider now Jethro as priest of Midian. If there ever was anyone who would not listen, wouldn't it be a, a religious leader of a different faith? Well, my uncle... You might say, my uncle is an imam. Well, my uncle is a Jewish rabbi. Well, my uncle is into the occult, witchcraft, whatever. They won't listen. This story isn't in here merely to be an example to us of how to reach our unbelieving family. The New Testament doesn't give us the indication that that is the primary purpose of the Old Testament. Jesus, when he speaks about the Old Testament, says, these scriptures testify of me. That's the primary thing that the New Testament tells us as the Old Testament is about. But the New Testament does also say in Corinthians that these things took place as examples for us. And so there is this exemplary aspect to Old Testament stories. And as we work our way through, we sometimes do see bad examples. And we sometimes do see good examples. And here we see a good example. 
of Moses relating to his father-in-law. And so we should take that and, and try to make it our own, appropriate that approach to unbelieving family. But that's not the main reason why this is here. Jethro was not merely Moses' father-in-law, but Jethro was a priest of Midian. This story is included in the Bible primarily to show us one of the first drops of rain and what would eventually become a, a downpour of Gentiles coming into the kingdom. We see here a Midianite, not a descendant of Jacob, not a child of Israel, but a Midianite. And a priest at that, if you went into a town to evangelize, who would you think would be your first convert? Probably not the local priest of another religion. And yet that's exactly what happens here. The priest of Midian is converted. And this is, again, the first fruits of what is going to be an abundant harvest of Gentiles. As God had promised in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again in Genesis 22, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see, the Lord had Gentiles in mind from the beginning, and he's starting to gather them in. He's constituted... Well, he, pardon me, I guess he hasn't quite constituted yet his people a nation. He's right on the cusp. They're now at Sinai and he's about to enter into the old covenant with them and constitute them as a nation. And one of the first things that he does is bring in a Gentile. Remember, it was a mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt, right? Which means Gentiles as well as Jews came out of Egypt, which means Egyptians as well as Jews, came up out of Egypt. Here's God adding in another Midianite, and a Midianite priest at that. What we see is that the conversion of the nations is in view from the beginning. And God is mighty to save. God is not merely mighty to destroy, as He destroyed the Egyptians. God is not merely mighty to bring down, as He humbled Pharaoh and drowned Pharaoh's army at the bottom of the Red Sea and laid Egypt's gods in the dust. God is mighty to raise up the dead into the living. Those who worship the creation up to become worshipers of the creator. God is mighty to save the Gentiles, the nations, God is faithful to keep his promises that the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham and in Abraham's offspring. This is primarily what's in view here. Not Jethro considered as Moses' father-in-law, but Jethro considered as a Midianite priest. Again, what is the means by which God will reach the nations? Primarily, it is this respectful proclamation. The same way that God reaches our loved ones 
that's, that's just a microcosm. There's a little evangelism that happens around the Christmas table or the Thanksgiving table or the Independence Day picnic or whatever it may be. These little conversations are just micro-conversations, are part of microcosms of the global enterprise of evangelism. The way that we relate to our family members is also the way that we ought to relate to the world. Respectful proclamation. Do this with gentleness and respect. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. Not quarrelsome. Able to teach. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now there is a time to give a stern answer, as I said. I don't think... I think you guys know me well enough to, to know that I don't dispute that. In fact, actually, after I preached this morning, there was a man uh, in the congregation who was an unbeliever, was very hostile, was very angry with me after church because I said that Muslims and Hindus and those outside of Christ Jesus will be lost. And he, was, he was very incensed about that. And he said, uh, he said no, he's like, he said, uh, I can't remember his exact words, but basically he was saying, you know, they will all be saved and um, that, that really nobody's going to be lost. And I think, I think it, was kind of, it was somewhat of an incoherent conversation because there was a lot of interrupting and uh, angry argumentation that was not necessarily flowing coherently. But there was a great deal of hostility and a great deal of hardness of heart. And I answered him fairly fairly sternly this morning, I said, I said, no, sir, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. You're quite wrong. You know, I told him, you, you're exhibiting what's called confirmation bias, which is that you're going to the Bible and looking for uh, data that fits your preconceived conclusions. The issue at the end of the day is that you do not believe because you will not believe. And I spoke to him very directly and very sternly about these things given the measure of hard-heartedness, right? So I'm not saying you, you never crank it up, you never turn it up, but I'm saying that we don't start with the hammer, that there is, there ought to be a proportion to our tone, there ought to be a proportion to our approach, and that we ought not to seek to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. We ought to temper our approach. This is, this is all that's meant by gentleness. Else, how could Jesus be gentle? Woe to you, Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones. Right? Or, or Paul. I wish that those who unsettle you about circumcision would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. If gentleness just meant being just nice all the time, how could Jesus say this? How could Paul say these things? Gentleness doesn't preclude stern, direct talking from time to time. But what gentleness means is that we're not unmeasured, we're not disproportionately rough in our dealings with people. Respectful proclamation, gentle proclamation, where we correct our opponents with gentleness, where we are kind to everyone where we give an answer, but we give an answer with gentleness and respect, and we proclaim a God-centered story. Let me tell you about all that the Lord has done for his people, how he brought us up out of our slavery, 
How he's with us as we make our way through this wilderness. How he's going to get us all the way across the Jordan and plant us on his holy mountain to live with us forevermore. Let me tell you about that story. Let me invite you into my tent where we can talk at greater length about these things. We ought to try to relate to people in a way that invites those kind of further conversations. After we bow down and kiss them, so to speak, after we exchange pleasantries, that there is this desire to engage further. And we proclaim a God-centered story. Of course, we can't argue anyone into the kingdom with forceful and harsh arguments, with sternness, with brashness, with a sledgehammer. We can't argue anyone into the kingdom. But neither can we argue anyone into the kingdom with niceness. Neither can we argue anyone into the kingdom with gentleness. Neither can we argue anyone into the kingdom with respect. God must open eyes. Unbelievers, whether they be hostile ones like I spoke to this morning, whether they be somewhat passive and mild-mannered ones who simply don't believe and don't seem to care too much about what you believe and they're just happy to let you do your thing and they do their thing. It doesn't matter where they fall on the spectrum. God must open their eyes. But one thing we see in the conversion of a priest of Midian is that God can open the eyes of even the most unlikely. God has commanded us to make our approach in a certain way that adorns the doctrine that we preach. How can we who preach grace not be gracious in our dealings? How can we who preach that we're not better than anyone else act like we're better than everyone else when we argue? How can we who preach love argue in an unloving way? God has commanded us to make our approach the way he does, not, not entirely so that we will be more effective, though I do believe that God tends to bless the means that he has prescribed more than the means that he hasn't prescribed. But God hasn't given us these instructions about how we're to make our approach to unbelievers, primarily so that we'll be more effective, but so that we'll adorn the doctrine of Christ. As Titus 2 says, there is a way of living and a way of interacting that adorns the doctrine of Christ. Just as there is a way of living and there is a way of arguing that undermines the doctrine of Christ. We should go forward with gentleness and respect, proclaiming a God-centered story, Believing that, yes, that's the, that's the mode that God is most likely to bless. And in that sense, it's more effective. But we do need to understand that we don't do it simply so that we will be effective. But because it adorns the doctrine of Christ, God must open eyes. All unbelievers are equally blind. Do you realize that no one is closer to conversion than anyone else? If you, if you were to just line up all the men that were in the party of Saul of Tarsus on their way to Damascus to persecute the believers, 
And let's say you had a two-minute interview with each one. You had a chance to ask them, or let's say, let's say, forget two minutes, let's say you had a 30-minute interview with each one, and you had a chance to ask them about their religious beliefs and the strength of their religious beliefs and their upbringing and whether they had heard about Christianity before, what they thought of it, so on and so forth. Who among that group do you think would be closer or closest to conversion? Probably not Saul of Tarsus. And yet what do we see on the road to Damascus? It's he who's knocked off his horse. Likewise, if you were to travel to Midian, who do you think would be the least likely to be converted? Probably the priest. No one is more likely to be converted than anyone else in a, in a worldly sense. We can't just tell by how angry someone is whether they're going to be converted or not. The man I spoke to this morning could be a Christian by the end of the day today as the Lord uses what he heard this morning to just bring him under heavy conviction. I could get a phone call tomorrow from Pastor Paul Garns and say, I heard from that fellow and he's come to know the Lord and he wants to get together and talk to you. That could happen. That's actually literally no less likely than that anyone else who was there this, this morning would be converted. God must open eyes. But God can open eyes. God does open eyes. So with loved ones, and with hardened idolaters, and with the irreligious, wherever they may be on the spectrum, proclaim a God-centered story. We are sinners, but there is a God in heaven who loves sinners. And the Father planned to save them and sent his Son to accomplish all that was necessary. The Lord Jesus entered this world to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a punishment-bearing death on our behalf, to rise, to ascend to the Father's right hand and to pour out upon us his Spirit and through his Spirit all the blessings of the covenant. And that we who trust in Christ Jesus receive all of these blessings and all of these benefits in him and through him as he is like the neck of the hourglass through which all the sand must pass. Christ Jesus is he in whom all of the benevolence all of the blessings of the covenant come to us. And God is with us as we make our way through this wilderness. And God will get us across the Jordan and into the promised land. And tell your loved ones, tell the angry, hostile responders to your sermons, and God can do it for you too. And leave the results with God. Proclaim that God-centered story. Do it with gentleness and respect. Not necessarily because that's going to be effective, but because God has commanded it. Because that tone adorns the doctrine of Christ. It's consistent with the doctrine of Christ that we preach. So proclaim that God-centered story. Do it with gentleness and respect. Leave the results with God, knowing that God must open eyes, or it's all in vain. But remember, and here's why Jethro's conversion is in the Bible. Remember that God can open eyes, even the eyes of priests of Midian, even the eyes of those whom we think are most blind. 
God can open their eyes. God does open their eyes. And God will open many more eyes before the return of Christ. So engage in this God-centered proclamation with gentleness and respect and with hope and with confidence that the promise that God made to Abraham will be brought to pass, that in Christ Jesus, his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed.